All right, welcome back. Welcome back to session two. I've got great news. We're turning it around. We're going to turn it around. We're moving from lament to redemption. So, woo, we got the sad one out of the way. But remember, it was a sad one that's infused with hope. So um, always remember that about Psalm 88. We are going to dive in to the redemption of Psalm 34. So if you want to open up your Bibles to Psalm 34, that's where we're going to be for the next little bit. But I want to first start by asking you a question. Where do good things come from in life? Where do good things come from in life? If we consider some of the slogans that have been adopted by certain companies, we might get some ideas. General Electric, GE, says that they bring good things to life. We bring good things to life. If you look at Nestle, Nestle says good food, good life. So good things in life come from good food. We might could see a little bit of truth there. Um, Allstate. Allstate says you are in good hands with Allstate. So evidently Allstate has got what it takes for the good life. And then there's KFC. If we go with KFC, then everything's finger-looking good. And that just sounds wonderful. Everything in life being finger-looking good, that'd be, that'd be great. As Christians, we know that the real good things, the things that matter, those things come from God because God is good. And His goodness can be experienced in the lives of those who fear Him. And this is one of the messages that David wanted to communicate to his readers through the words of Psalm 34. God is good and he is going to fill the lives of those who are obediently faithful and who fear him. He's going to fill their lives with good things. So let's read Psalm 34. I'm going to read it in its entirety so we've got the full picture as we go forward. Here we go. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. And their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. 
Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Oh, isn't this a full turnaround from our last psalm? But isn't it a great psalm to read after we read Psalm 88? Isn't it reassuring to think that as the psalmist writing those words, speaking those words in prayer in Psalm 88, was struggling and suffering, and here David is reminding us God is there. God is there. And He hears the righteous. So, what events led David to write the words of this psalm? What can we learn from his inspired words here? Oh, there's so much. We could do like a lesson in every single verse. We could like pull out all these beautiful nuggets from this psalm. There's so many things as we read it. Didn't you hear so many little things that we we use as, as verses, as references? Oh, it's so hard to just look at the whole thing without spending a lot of time on each little phrase. But we're going to try to look at this whole psalm and take some some truth from it, take some lessons from it by looking at the whole message. So let's look at the title again like we did for Psalm 88. As we saw in that psalm, the, the title sets the stage. It sets the stage for the psalm that follows. And it's true here too. So look at the words here that were written as the introduction. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Well, that's interesting. And that tells us a little bit about maybe what was happening here. But there's a little bit of debate about this title. And so let me point out a couple of things here before we get into the actual meat of the psalm. It seems pretty straightforward what happened here. Except this name Abimelech that is thrown into this title. Because when you read that title, what you probably think about is that time in David's life when he feigned madness. When he pretended to be crazy. We're going to talk about that story in just a second so that we can really, really have a good idea of why why David wrote these words. But if you go back to that place in 1 Samuel chapter 21, you're going to find something a little bit concerning. The king's name was not Abimelech. The king's name was Achish. Hmm. Why in the world would it not say when David pretended madness before Achish? That seems to be a little bit of a conflict there. Well, there are some explanations for that. One of the things that is suggested is that Achish had more than one proper name. His name was Achish, that's what he was called, but he also might have had the name Abimelech. That might have been a name he was given. What is more likely is this second suggestion that is given by scholars, that Abimelech is a title. It's a royal title, similar to the title of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a title given to an Egyptian king. And so Abimelech also was a title. And we see another one, Caesar. Caesar was a title that was given to Roman kings. Abimelech would have literally meant my father is king. 
That's the meaning of the word Abimelech. And in other Old Testament accounts, we see this, this title, Abimelech, given to the ruling Philistine king. And we see that in Genesis chapter 20 and chapter 21 and chapter 26. So, in this sense, the name Abimelech would have been referring to the king of the Philistines at that time who was Achish. So that explains why that that word, that name, would be used in this title. But before we go any further, we need to go back and visit what happened in 1 Samuel 21. Because it really is the springboard. It's really what leads David to these thoughts that he put down into writing, into words. And that are expressed here in Psalm 34. So, if you have your Bible, kind of keep your marker there at Psalm 34. But let's flip over to Psalm 21. We're not going to read all of Psalm 21. I'm just going to tell you what was happening. And then you can kind of follow along if you would like to. In 1 Samuel 21, we find David in a difficult situation. He has already been anointed as God's true king. But there is a small problem. There is still a reigning king. Saul is still the king of Israel. And so this makes it a little bit difficult. But what compounds all of that is the people love David. Remember, he's defeated the giant. He defeated Goliath. And the people love him. He is lifted up as as a hero among the people. And we see this change in the way that Saul looked at David. At first, David was calming to his spirit. Remember, he would call David to come in and play for him, play music for him, and it would ease his spirit. Well, that's changed. Saul's spirit has changed toward David into a spirit of jealousy, even to the point of trying to take David's life. And so when we get to 1 Samuel 21, David's running. David is running from Saul. He's trying to hide from Saul. And so in this chapter, he is running from Saul and he comes to Nob and Ahimelech was the priest. Ahimelech was the priest. And he asks David, what are you doing here? And David makes up something. He tells him, well, the king ordered me to come here and so uh, I'm on some business and and I'm just supposed to do some things and, and you're supposed to do what I ask you to do. And so he stays there and and is hiding in the land of Nob with the priest Ahimelech. And as the story goes on and some other things are are happening in here, uh, some interesting things are occurring, but then something interesting happens. David asks something of the priest. He asks the priest in verse 8, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? David wants some kind of a weapon, something that he can have, something to take, to use as protection. You know, he's running and hiding. His life is, is threatened by Saul. And so he asks, Is there anything that you have here? Because I've, not, I've brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business that he's there on made me leave fast. I had to get here in a hurry. I didn't have time to grab any kind of weapon. And in verse 9, the priest says, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed. There it is. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. An ephod is something that the priest would wear. It was something that they would wear when they would approach God in, in request or in a petition for something. And behind the ephod was hidden the sword of Goliath. 
Remember back to when David defeated Goliath and he used the one small stone and, and hit Goliath in the head and he falls down. And remember, he went up and he drew the sword of the giant and cut off Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword. Did you ever wonder what happened to the sword? After that, well, here you go. It was kept by the priest. The sword of Goliath. So how ironic is it that here is David and he needs a sword and Ahimelech says, well, the only thing I have is the sword of the giant Goliath whom you killed. It's over there, wrapped in a cloth. And look what David says at the end of verse 9. I love it. David says, there is none like it. Give it to me. (laughs) Give it to me. I will take the sword of Goliath. And then he runs. And he runs to a place called Gath. And Gath is very, very important to know who lived here because it has everything to do with the next few things that happen. Gath was the land of the Philistines. David has the sword of the warrior giant Goliath and he's going to go hide out in the land where Goliath was from. This sounds like a disaster. Like this sounds, (laughs) this does not sound like it's going to have a good ending. He may have been thinking they'll never, they'll never find me there. They would never think to find me in the land of the Philistines. Well, David arose, fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. This is verse 10 in chapter 21. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now the Philistines didn't like David. They didn't like the Israelites, just in general. They really didn't like David. And David heard them say this. David knew that they took these words back to the king. It says in verse 12, he took these words to heart and he was very much afraid of the king of Gath. What would Achish do to David if he found him there? Imagine what he would do if he found David and says, wait a second, I recognize that sword. It's the sword of my mighty warrior. What would they have done to David? So this is what David does in verse 13. He changes his behavior before them. He pretends madness. He pretends insanity, your Bible might say. He's scratched on the doors of the He's acting like he is out of his mind. He's scratching the doors of the gate. He's letting his saliva drop down into his beard. He's drooling, drooling and scratching and acting like he's crazy. And you know what happens? It works because King Achish says, no way. No way. Achish says to his servants, look, you see this man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? It worked. David pretended to be crazy and Achish bought it. Who is this madman? And so the very beginning of chapter 22, verse 1, it says, David therefore departed and escaped. I want you to imagine that scene. I want you to imagine the anointed king of God. The mighty warrior David. Loved by the people. Chosen by God. Acting like he was crazy. Purposely drooling. 
scratching at a wall. Do you think, maybe, do you consider what was going through his mind? Do you think about maybe, was he angry? I can't believe I'm here doing this. This is absolutely ridiculous. Was he humiliated? He was fearful, we know for sure. It says that the heart of David was fearful when he heard the words of the servants of of the king. Well, we can't know. We can't know in this account right here what David was thinking. It doesn't tell us. We can guess, but there's no insight into that at this particular moment of time. But guess what? It's revealed to us later. And it's revealed to us here in the words of Psalm 34. This song of praise has been linked to those events that took place in Gath. And it's beautiful. It is a beautiful expression of thanksgiving. Because in this psalm, David does not take credit for the idea of being crazy. He does not take credit for his, his success or his ability to outsmart the king of the Philistines. He does not take credit for it. You know what he does? In Psalm 34, he glorifies God for hearing his prayer. He glorifies God here for delivering him from his enemies. What you might do sometimes is look through, like underline how many times in this psalm David says the Lord delivers. He delivers. He says it time after time, numerous times in this psalm. The Lord delivered me. The Lord delivers. The Lord delivers the righteous. He says it over and over. Alright, so we're going to hit this psalm in sections. Kind of like we did Psalm 88. We're going to go and just kind of look at it in in big sections. But first I want to tell you some interesting things about this psalm. Some literary things that are very, very interesting. It is, first of all, categorized as a Thanksgiving psalm. It is an individual psalm of Thanksgiving. So, as somebody has gone through, many people have gone through and categorized the psalms, this one would be underneath the Thanksgiving psalms. There are many beautiful things that you see in this psalm, and some of them can be appreciated a little bit more in the original language. There is a lot of intentionality that is put into this psalm, the way that it is written. There is structure to this psalm. There is theme in this psalm. There is imagery in this psalm. There are metaphors. There are symbol there's symbolism, there's prophecy. It is just it is just full of these beautiful literary gems. It doesn't seem like David just on a whim was like, oh, let me write down just kind of these thoughts that are in my head. It was like he purposefully did it. He was thinking about it. And what's so neat about it is that it is not just a psalm of praise. We'll see at one point in this psalm where it shifts into a psalm of instruction. Praise and instruction. I love that about this psalm because how important is this? When we are when we are encouraging each other, when we are talking to each other and we are building each other up, that we work into that teaching and instructing. Do you know that's what edification is? 
building up on the truth of God's Word. We need to remember that. That when we're talking to people and when we're sharing something that we are in, in praise over, that we throw in a little instruction. Here's something for you to know. Here's a lesson for you from this. David does that here, and we'll see it when he, when he brings it um, all together, when he kind of shifts from praise into instruction. The first ten verses are his praise, his answered prayer, the way that the Lord delivered him from his troubles. In the second section, verses 11 through 22, is, it's like a sermon. It's almost like a sermon. He's motivating the listeners. He's motivating to do something. Sometimes this psalm is called a wisdom psalm because he is using his experience in order to encourage others to follow, to follow God, to be faithful. Another interesting thing about this psalm, besides the fact that it has this praise and it has this teaching and it has all of these beautiful little literary uh, things in it that make it very special and very rich, is that if you look at it in Hebrew, it is an acrostic. It is an acrostic psalm. That means that every verse of this psalm begins with a corresponding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I love a good acrostic. Oh, I love it. I use them all the time. I use them for my students. I use them in anatomy. I use them all the time. You know why? Because you remember stuff. You remember things when you use an acrostic. You have letters and you can remember. How neat that David used this pattern in this psalm. Again, a sign of intentionality. I want to teach you something and I want you to remember it. I love it. All right, so let us jump in to this beautiful, beautiful psalm. First of all, I want you to see, and you can hear it in this psalm, that David is passionate. He is passionate in the way that he praises God. You can feel it in the words. You can feel it in the language. He is excited about telling other people about God's goodness and God's faithfulness. He's excited and you can, you can just feel it in the text as you read through the words. First of all, it starts out like this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. How do you boast in the Lord? What does that even mean, to boast in the Lord? It sounds like maybe something that we shouldn't do. It sounds like boasting maybe would not be the right kind of an attitude that we should have. Well, hold on to that for just a second. Hold on to that boasting. I want you to also, before we kind of look a little bit closer at these first few verses, there are numerous times in this psalm that David mentions the word good. He says the word good throughout this psalm four different times. He's talking about the goodness of the Lord. The goodness or the blessings that come to those who fear him. There is goodness in a moral sense, in doing good. And then David encourages his readers to fear the Lord because if they do, they can experience that goodness. Again, he's reflecting on what happened to him in Gath, this very difficult experience that he had, but he wants them to know that there is something important that came from that difficult situation. There's something that he learned, and he is going to share it with them. 
the first section, blessing the Lord in verses 1 through 3. Let's consider a couple things here. David says at the very beginning, I'll bless the Lord at all times. I want you to see here that that David's blessing, his praise that is continually coming from his mouth is ongoing. It is constant. It's like the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 88. His prayer was continual. It was day and night. And that is how David describes his praise. It's going to be in weakness and in strength. It's going to be in happiness and in in sorrow. It is never going to end. We can fast forward to some things that we are instructed in the New Testament. The way that he talks about continually being in praise reminds me of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 that says, Give thanks in everything, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Or in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, when Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Our praise is continual. But let's go back to this word boast. Boast in the Lord. In the sense that David uses boast here, it's not in a conceited sense. It's not in a sense that is self-motivated. One commentator said it like this. As David uses it, this word boasting in God, he refers to the deeds, the words and deeds that recognize the goodness and loving kindness of the Heavenly Father. To bless God is to give Him honor. It's to give Him thanks. It's not self-centered. Remember in the last psalm, um, a commentator referred to the questioning of why to God as holy boldness. Well, here, that same commentator referred to this as holy boasting. This is holy boasting. It is pointing out about God, who He is, His attributes, His promises, His covenant, His works, all the wonderful things about God. It's boasting in God. In God's goodness, holy boasting. And David encourages his readers, the people who are hearing this, to magnify God with him. He wants to share in praise and in worship. And in verse 2, he has a specific group of people that he wants to invite. In verse 2, he says, The humble. The humble shall hear it and be glad. Oh, let us magnify the lowly people. The people whose trust and whose hope is in the Lord. These are the people he's calling out to because these are the people that are going to be able to relate to what he is talking to them about. These are the people, the humble, the ones who can really benefit from the care of God. Oh, humble people, hear this praise and join in with me, is what David is saying. So it begins here with a blessing. And then it moves into this next section, verses 4 through 7. And here David is remembering the deliverance of God. I sought the Lord and he heard me. This is the reason for David's praise. This is the reason why he is praising God. I sought the Lord and he answered me. This is something about God, about David, that is so wonderful. One of his very most beautiful attributes, I think, is he was a man who sought God. How do you seek God? How do you seek God in your life? 
We could talk about different ways that we do that. We can seek God in prayer. We can seek God in Bible study. We can seek God in nature. We can seek God in fellowship. It is a longing to want to be near to God. And David was a seeker. He was a seeker of God, not because he was perfect. Not because he was perfect. He was a seeker because he knew he needed God. He knew he had to have God. The Bible tells us wonderful things will happen to those who seek God. Number one thing the Bible says about those who seek God is they'll find Him. They'll find Him. If you're looking for Him, God promises you'll find me. There are verses, Jeremiah 29.13 says, If you seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me. And then there's verses in 2 Chronicles 15 verse 2 is another one that talks about God looking for those people whose hearts belong to Him, who seek Him. And when David cried out, he sought the Lord. This makes me wonder if in that moment, in Gath, when David was standing there, afraid because his life was going to be in danger, he sought the Lord. Did he call out to him in prayer? I think so. I think maybe he did. I think maybe he said, God, help me. Rescue me from this situation. Because he says here, I sought him and he heard me. That makes it sound like David called out for the help of God. And his deliverance came. In verse 4, it says, He delivered me from my fears. David had lots of things to fear in his life. Right now, in this situation, or in the response, what had happened to, to call on this response was that his life was in danger. Saul was seeking to kill him, and God delivered him. He calls himself a poor man who cried out to God and was heard. Not poor in a monetary sense, not poor in that he didn't have things, he didn't have stuff. He was poor in that he was humble. He was not proud. And when he prayed, God didn't just hear him. He saved him. And then in verses 5 and 7, David describes the marvelous result that will be for those who look to God. Those who depend on God. Those who fear Him. And he says, those who do that, they're going to be radiant. Radiant. There are places in Scripture that use this phrase or this word radiant. Radiant is used in Isaiah chapter 60 verse 5 as describing a mother's face as radiant when she sees her children after a long separation. You know when my girls come back from college, my face is radiant. (laughs) I am so excited to see them. When I go back home, when I see my, my, my son, my face will be radiant because I want to be with them. It is a shining. It's beautiful. Exodus 34:29 describes the face of Moses as radiant from being in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 3:18 talks about that image, this this idea of of a Christian growing into the likeness of the Lord. It's a trans it's a transformation, and that's what radiance is. It is a transformation of glory. 
David also says that those who fear God will have the angel of the Lord encamped all around them and they will be delivered. There's lots of discussion over what that means. What does it mean to have the angel of the Lord encamp around you? I'm just going to give you a brief answer. And it's not mine. It's one that I read in a commentary that I thought summed it up well. The angel of the Lord sometimes stands for the Lord himself at other times for his spiritual agent. In any case, the psalmist understands that God is the ultimate source of his rescue. The fact that the angel encamps around those who fear him points to God as the divine warrior who fights on behalf of his people. All right, the next section, verses 8 through 10. Oh, i got to speed up. Speeding up here. All right, verses 8 through 10. The biggest thing here that I think that we need to take from this psalm is the idea of relationship. Relationship with God. David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, I love that song. Have y'all... Oh, one of my favorites. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. David is saying, try him. Try him. He's good. The word taste and see are communicating this idea of experience. You experience God. You don't just know Him with your mind. You taste Him and you see how good He is. David is using this metaphor to encourage people to come into a relationship with God. Oh, how we need to teach this to young people. This is not just a book of rules. It is a book of relationship. Taste Him. See Him. See that He is good. David is encouraging his readers to sample God. Sample Him and you will see the benefit. And then he talks about what's involved in that. He he talks about what is involved in tasting. In verse 9, it's fearing the Lord. And in verse 10, it is seeking the Lord. When you fear Him and you seek Him, you will have no want and you will lack no good thing. In verses 11 through 14, This is where the psalm turns. It turns from a psalm of praise into a psalm of instruction. And David says, come, come children, come and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. He's addressing his learners as children. And what is the lesson that he is teaching him? David could have taught on any number of things. David had experience of all kinds of things. He was a he was a, he proved himself a warrior, somebody who God was going to fight for and fight with. He was a shepherd, he was a musician, he was a writer. He could have instructed on all kinds of things. But here, what he wants them to learn is the reasons that they have for fearing God. He says, Who of you desires to live a good life? Surely everyone. But the one who wants to live a good life has to fear the Lord. The umbrella message of this psalm, the whole idea of this psalm, is that a life that is characterized by fear of the Lord is going to lead, it's going to lead to a life that is filled with the goodness of God. A life that is characterized by fear of the Lord is a life that is filled with a goodness from God. But then David has kind of a little bit of a a qualifier coming up. 
Because he says a good life, a good life is not the easy life. The good life is not the perfect life. The good life, this is how David says he sh- we should understand this, this word good when it comes to our lives. He said it's not easy or perfect. A good life is a life that is lived near to God. It is a life of help and an eternal life of hope. That is the good life. And then in verses 15 through 22, David is going to explain how his readers can understand the faithfulness of God. And he's going to go through this section by showing that the Lord is good. He is going to give example after example of God's faithfulness. He is going to say that the righteous cry and if they are brokenhearted and crushed in spirit and their afflictions are many, he's going to tell them that. And that doesn't sound good. But David says it's okay because there's good news in that. The good news is in 17, 18, and 19 that the Lord hears you, the Lord is near to you, He saves you, and He rescues you. The Lord is going to keep your bones from being broken. And we can't overlook that connection, that messianic prophecy connection that is there, referring to Jesus on the cross. Not one of his bones would be broken. God is good. Fear him. When David was in the city of Gath, he found himself in a terrible situation. Saul was chasing after him, and his life was in danger. But not only that, he was hiding out in a place that was swarmed with his enemy. The Philistines were all around, and he was fearful. He was afraid. But Psalm 34 tells us where his thoughts were in that moment. He cried out in prayer, and God answered, and God rescued him. David trusted that God would provide deliverance, but he didn't sit there in Gath and do nothing. He didn't just sit there and wait for God's deliverance to pick him up and move him out of there and put him in a cave where he could hide. David had to do something. Calling on God and asking for God's help does not mean that we do nothing. It doesn't mean that we just sit and we wait. David came up with a plan. David came up for a, with a way to avoid capture. But at the same time, he knew he wasn't going to be successful without the help of God. He knew it would take God's help. And in the end, he gives all the glory to God. He never once says, Oh, look at what I did. What a great idea I had. And how brilliant it was executed. It wasn't like that at all. He gives God all of the glory. In this psalm, David praises and gives thanksgiving for the goodness of God. And he says this goodness can be experienced in the lives of those who fear him. He encourages his readers to be fearful of the Lord. Respect him. Be obedient to him. That is one of the timeless messages of this psalm. Psalm 34 says God is good. And he says, fear him. 
That is the underlying message, the take home of Psalm 34. He is near to those who fear him. He hears and he answers their prayers. One commentator said this answer involves rescue, deliverance, protection, and redemption. It brings vindication and makes our face shine instead of being ashamed. It it promises us the good things in life rather than lack. It promises us a full and long life and experience of shalom, peace. David continues to encourage us today through these words. He says, fear God, bless Him, praise Him, seek Him, look to Him, fear Him, taste Him, take refuge in Him, and then you also will experience His goodness. Thank you very much.